I want to talk for three lessons on uh, no wasted years, no meaningless days, being the person you were meant to be, and capturing what this little inscription says, a beautiful heart brings into your life all the money in the world couldn't get you. The Lord is looking to build something in your life from day one, from the moment that you were baptized into His name. Everything changed. And exploring the thought of how this change develops in our life and, and uh, God's patience with this change, but yet His insistence upon that we change, and, and actually looking at what does the change look like? What's the difference between just a good person and someone who's living a distinctive Christian life? I read a, in a previous lesson from the hymn I sang growing up that my dad led, Years I Spent in Vanity. And the song again says, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. By God's word at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Let's pause for a moment. This song is a, a song of growth where go, someone goes from being an enemy of God to now faith in God. But then the third verse, now I've give to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So here this song captures what it means to be converted to Christ. You live in rebellion against God, vanity, pride. But all of a sudden life becomes extremely meaningful. Uh, the writer says, now I've given to Jesus everything. I gladly own him as my king. And oftentimes we sing of... Christ being our king, and that will mean something very real in our personal lives, and that's kind of what we're touching upon in these lessons, to see that every day is full of meaning and purpose. And even though that you might have spent wasted years uh, running from God, once you come to Jesus Christ, there will be no more wasted years. There will be no meaningless days, because every day will be a day of growth, a day of newness, a day of opportunity to take on the character <coughs> excuse me, that God invested in when He gave His Son for you and I. So we're going to explore that uh, theme in three lessons. Just to kind of preview those lessons, uh, they're basically three lessons on Christian growth and purpose. They're going to be three lessons on what your life is all about so that you always know where you're going and you know what each day holds for you. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the transition, uh, changing from darkness to light. Uh, this is the very beginning of the conversion process when someone gives their life to God. We'll talk about this morning and, and what happens immediately, what your mission is. Then we'll look at what I call the addition. Because we're told in 2 Peter that we're to add to our faith different character qualities. Uh, the song says, just as I am, but we'll learn that God doesn't leave you there. Just as you were when you were baptized. It's a, it's a day of beginning where we will work to add character qualities that are priceless into your life to start shaping you into the image of the 
the person he's always wanted you to be, who you've meant to be. So that will be the addition. What is being added to your life? And then in the third lesson, we'll talk about the refinement. We'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, where Paul talks about principles of love. And we see the first principle of love, as Jesus taught us, to love God. But then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to truly love someone as God defines the word love in this text? With all of these additions and these character refinements, it's a lifetime of growth. But as one song said, it's a beautiful life. Before we go into this transition, I want to read this the words from this other hymn. I, I grew up singing this song too. It's called A Beautiful Life. Because that's what God has called you to. You'll remember these words um, as I read them. Each day I'll do. Remember that song? Each day I'll do. Each day I'll do a golden deed by helping those who are in need. My life on earth is but a span, and so I'll do the best I can. You know it, don't you, Barbara? Yes. To be a child of God each day, my life must shine along the way. I'll sing His praise while ages roll and strive to help some troubled soul. The only life that will endure is one that's kind, good, and pure. And so for God I'll take my stand. Each day I'll lend a helping hand. A helping hand. While going down life's weary road, I'll try to lift some traveler's load. I'll try to turn the night to day, make flowers bloom along the way, the lonely way. But again, the title of the song is A Beautiful Life, where someone who has given their life to God is so captivated by uh, their mission, their purpose, where again, there will be no wasted years, no meaningless days. And that's what we're going to explore as we now look at this first theme of simply what could be called the transition, changing from darkness to light. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, said this, For you were once darkness. And this is Ephesians 5, verse 8. He says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. So here we're described as people that have made a transition from darkness to light. But he says you were once darkness. He said that was your past life. Uh, here, Paul, through the Spirit, does not entertain the idea that you're still in darkness, even though you may be committing sin at times. He says you were once darkness, that cloud was once part of your light, but you're now children of light, you live in the light. And he says again, live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. That's exactly what we're exploring in these lessons. What does God want from you? Or what does God want from me? What, what is pleasing to Him? He didn't just baptize you to leave you there. Defend for yourself to the day that he calls you home. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, by the Spirit of God, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light that you might proclaim his excellencies. Again, we're called out of darkness when we come to Christ, are baptized, we enter into the light, and then we are to live in that light 
to show others what our God is all about. This transition, changing from darkness to light. Four things we'll look at just briefly this morning to see exactly what this transition is, what we've ended and then what we started. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be there in just a minute because all four of these principles this morning will be from Ephesians 4 because I think this text, even though there are many, captures exactly what this change or transition looks like. Here's the first principle. When you come to Jesus Christ, when you confess Him as Lord, uh, when you repent of your sin, you make that decision to get out of the sinning business and quit trafficking in sin and you decide to live for God. Uh, when you know that the gospel is true and you embrace it by faith and are baptized into Jesus Christ, here's the first thing you do. Once you go on with your life after baptism, you leave the life that you buried. You leave the life that you buried. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, again, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 in just a minute. Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the death to the glory of God, we too may what? Live a new life. In baptism, not only are our sins forgiven, and then the Holy Spirit enters our life to live once we are raised out of the waters of baptism, we also are leaving that old person behind. And that old person is being buried. because says you are buried with him in baptism. And that old person is to stay buried. But the challenge of the Christian life is that old person wants to resurrect itself. The old habits, the old mannerisms, the ways of getting around in the world, the ways of dealing with people, the ways of getting what you want, the ways of entertaining yourself, things like that. All those old ways that are incompatible with what God has called you to, those things stay buried. But that's part of the greatest challenge of the Christian life, leaving behind what you buried. Because a lot of times Satan wants to take you back to the graveyard. He wants you snooping around in the things that you buried the day that you're baptized. And he wants you digging up those things out of the ground and trying to live those things all over again. And just as grotesque is trying to get a body exhumed from the ground to try to live it again, so is someone going back to the old things that they once lived. Look what Paul says now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 about leaving the life behind that you buried the day you're baptized. Ephesians 4, verse 17, he tells these people that are already Christians, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, for they are full of greed. Verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ 
and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your, what? Put off your old self, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and then to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to be put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's just isolate what we're getting rid of. Here Paul says, hey, when you came to Christ, he says, you're no longer to live like the Gentiles. Now, the fundamental meaning of the word Gentile is a non-Jewish person. But back in the first century, it was not just a non-Jewish person. It was someone of a pagan background who basically lived a life that was whatever they wanted. There were no moral principles guiding it. There was no purpose. There's no sense of purity or integrity. If you need to lie, you lie. If you wanted to fulfill a desire, you just did it however you wanted. And that's what Gentile culture was known for. But he tells them here, you can't live that way any longer. Uh, that lifestyle is separated from God. Uh, it's a hardening of heart. A person's lost all sensitivity. And they're indulging in whatever kind of impurity and greed they want. That lifestyle still exists today. You see it on TV. You see it in the movies. You might see it in people you work with and live around. But it is incompatible with the life that God has called us to. And we have to get out of that lifestyle when we come to Christ. That's the life that we keep buried. Again, he says, verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. He goes on to say that seven times in verses 17 through 5, verse 3. Uh, verse 22, he says, you put off your old self. Uh, verse 25, you put off falsehood. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Uh, verse 28, those who've been stealing must steal no longer. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, slander, brawling, anger, and every form of malice. Here in the Christian life, there's this stuff that we got to kill. And we have to put to death and keep buried the things that we said we would stop doing the day that we're baptized and that God expects us to stop. Today, sometimes people call those their triggers. They call their triggers things that ultimately and very quickly turn into bad behaviors. Well, they'll use your anger to hurt someone physically or let loose on someone verbally. Well, I was triggered. Well, God says when you come to Christ, you deal with that. Your triggers are not someone else's problem. Your triggers you were not born with. You might have had something traumatic happen in your past, or things are very upsetting to you, but just because you're triggered doesn't mean you can unleash a volley of physical or verbal violence against someone. Or you can just go on a weekend, of, I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm so angered and I'm just going to live it up to make myself feel better. When you leave behind that you buried, uh, you leave behind the ghost of the past. Uh, you leave behind people that want to come into your life to ruin it through temptation, through wrong relationships, and 
wrong associations, those ghosts of the past you might have to keep at a distance from you. Uh, learned responses have to be dealt with. May you've learned to get your way by using anger, <laughs> by just kind of shouting people down or intimidating people, or making people scared to be around you. you. You deal with that. Maybe your learned response is to run away from problems. You run away from people or situations where it's just too difficult, but you don't really engage the problem and try to solve it. You run from it. When you come to Christ, you deal with that. You deal with attractions that will lead you down the wrong path. You moderate your entertainment choices. You regulate your internet use. You stay around people and you go into places that keep you pure. You work on that because you're leaving behind the old person, the old self that has to stay buried. Uh, you learn how to treat people the way God wants you treated. Don't treat people just how you saw your dad do it or how you saw your mom treat their, uh, your dad, things like that. You don't use other people to compare how you ought to live. You say, what is God's standard for my life? That is living or leaving the life that you buried. And our calling for the rest of our lives is to constantly leave the things that are sinful and destructive. Here's the second one. You embrace who you were meant to be. Once you've decided, I'm going to get out of the sinning business, that doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're going to now start trying. Before Christ, you just did what felt good. You did what you wanted, and you went with your impulses, you went with your emotions in the moment, and uh, whatever the weekend called for, you did. Well, now you're different in Christ. And not only are you leaving behind things that, you said you would bury at baptism. You're embracing who you were meant to be. And God, again, God doesn't leave you where you were when you're baptized. He says, just as you are, I'll take you, but I'm not going to leave you there. I have big plans for you, God says. And look what that is uh, in the next set of verses. Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. Start at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Verse 23 now. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Here the whole idea is that you were called to a life of newness. And when you come to Christ, you're called to the life that God's always wanted you to live. It's a life that he wanted Adam and Eve to live. But in about 15 minutes in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve went south in their choices. And what the story of the Bible is all about is God redeeming mankind, which means redeeming you and I to bring us back to what we were. Even if you're raised in the church and you know all this stuff, he wants to bring you to a true righteousness and holiness, he says. He says you are created to be like God. Just as the psalm he says, we are to forgive as he forgave. Not to forgive as you saw someone else forgive. Not to act like you see some church person act, but, but to create it to be like God. And that's a lofty task. But that's exactly what we are created to be. But notice what he also says, you are created to be like God, verse 24, in true righteousness and holiness. 
We have to be careful what God created us to be, truly righteous and truly holy. He did not create us to be self-righteous. Let me say that again. He did not create us in Christ to be self-righteous. One of the biggest problems we have with coming to Christ is once our lives do improve, and once they take on distinctively better qualities and we get out of the sinning business and we're not doing on Friday nights what we used to and things like that, our life is better. But then Satan says, well, I'm going to come at you from another angle. I'm going to make you self-righteous. Pretty soon you're going to start looking around at all the people that should be doing what you're doing and that should be making the decision you made. And sometimes within a very short period of time, Satan can derail even new Christians by them getting so agitated at what others are doing and provoked by culture and provoked by people at work that are doing something they shouldn't be doing, that they actually become a very self-righteous person and people don't even like being around them because of the way they're acting. They're acting holier than thou. The old saying goes, sometimes someone is so spiritual they're of no earthly good. Satan knows how to go after everyone. Sometimes the most, more spiritually minded you are, the worse you are for other people. Because you carry this self-righteousness. And that's why Paul called it, you are created for God in true righteousness and holiness. That means you walk in humility. Yes, your life is improving. Things are being changed in your life. But you walk in humility. You are always grateful for what God has done. You recognize it's by God's mercy that you've been changed and not because now you're making yourself really good. The world needs who you were meant to be. So whatever this new life is, it has to be attractive to other people so they want to be part of it. Again, you are adopting something beautiful. This new life of holiness will never be obsolete. It will never be a trend that will go away. It'll never be old-fashioned. It's not like a tattoo that you get at one point in your life and then 10 years later you wish, well, I wish I'd either not got this or I wish I got something different. <laughs> uh, it's not like that. It's a purchase you will never regret. When you take on this new life, you'll never say, man, all this time working on being humble and being nice and good, oh man, it's just not working anymore. Instead, you'll see relationships improve. You'll see attitudes be what they ought to be. You'll see things, even though you have problems, you'll find a way through, through prayer and dependence upon God. It's a beautiful life, as the hymn writer said. It's a beautiful life to embrace. You'll never want to go back to that old lifestyle because you think, well, that was better. I've never seen someone that's driving a Lamborghini say, I want to go back to my 73 Corolla. It was just so much nicer. Uh, you'll never do that. The Satan will try to take you back and think the 73 Corolla is better, and he does that all the time. But when God calls you to this beautiful life, you're who you are meant to be. And you won't struggle with your identity and what is my life all about. Every day you'll know what your life is about. It's about becoming like God and taking on His character as you learn about it in Scripture, as you sing about it in song, as you see it modeled by other Christians. You'll say, this is what I want from my life. I want to be unselfish. I, I want to be someone that encourages rather than discourages people. I want 
to be someone that's a model to young people rather than a bad example to them. Your life will always be thinking this way if someone new in Christ. That's the life God intends for you to be. And the beauty of this is you get to be a new person every day. And you get to be a beautiful person. Because our beauty comes from the inside. You can be a model, but if you don't have character on the inside, when people see you, they will see someone very ugly. <laughs> this is it. And this is a blessing of where God works. He doesn't work on trying to refigure your exterior. We're all born with the way that we look. But the beauty of transformation is it's inside out. And some people that may not have been blessed with all the features that they see in other people can be an extremely attractive person when they take on the character of God. People want to be around you. They want to absorb the things of kindness, of goodness, of patience and love that you exhibit. And those are the most beautiful people on the planet. That's who God intends for you to be. He invested the life of his son in you to become that kind of person. Number three, exchange bad behaviors for the opposite. You might think, well, John, can you get more specific on what I need to work on and what I need to get rid of and what I need to put on instead? Yes, because the Apostle Paul did that. He doesn't just say, hey, be a better person and then go on. He goes on here in this text in verses 25 through 32 and touches on 2,000 years ago. Some things are just as real uh, today as they were back then as far as things that we have to overcome. Let's just go through them one by one. <clears throat> Verse 24, he said, And put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25 now. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body so here he first takes on a lying disposition uh, if your life has been full of deceit and lying and telling tall stories about things you've done that you never did or your way of getting out of a jam is to tell either a police officer or a good friend something you know is not true just to get yourself out of that situation Paul says, stop it. He says, put off falsehood. He doesn't say go into therapy for it for three years to see if it's wrong or not. He says, you just stop it. You get out of the lying business. But he's not saying here, just stop lying and then sit in the car and don't say anything. A lot of times, liars love to talk. They've just learned to talk about the wrong things and to make up things that never happened or tell tall stories to get themselves out of things. Paul doesn't say here, stop talking. He says instead, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He says, keep on talking. talking. People that talk can, can be a blessing. <laughs> uh, communication is something God gave us. He doesn't say, you just sit down, I won't say anything if I can't lie. Um, as you speak truthfully. Tell people about what you really did. Here's what I really did this weekend. I didn't do anything. But I enjoyed it. A lot of times liars think they have to make up stuff they did to impress people on Monday morning they work with. Be content with not doing anything. Speak truthfully. I didn't do anything this weekend. I just sat around. Okay, hey, that's what I did too. And things like that. You learn, hey, 
speaking the truth is okay. And then you learn to develop that truth where, hey, here's what I did this week. I didn't do anything. Hey, what'd you do? Let's talk about your life. A lot of times liars are very self-absorbed people. They just want to talk about themselves, me monsters. And it's always about them, me, me, me. But here, speak truthfully means you not only tell the truth about yourself, you become more interested in other people. So your life is transformed by getting rid of one bad behavior, but taking on the exact opposite. You get rid of one behavior, but you take on the opposite, speaking truthfully. That means to the IRS, that means to your boss, that means to your spouse, your friends, your neighbor, whoever it is, you now speak truthfully with them and trust that that's the right thing to do. Let's see what else Paul says. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Our emotions are natural. Anger is a natural emotion. If you see a child being hurt by someone, you ought to be angry about that. That would be sinful not to be angry. But he says, in your anger, do not what? Sin. Don't let that anger turn into something where, hey, you're going to take this into your own hands. There's all kinds of movies where, oh, whether the Dirty Harry movies or things like that, where you're just going to do whatever you can because that person has violated something against you and you're just going to overwhelm them with your physical or verbal response. He says, don't do that. You don't sit in your anger. Even though something your spouse said upsets you or something your boss said is very upsetting and demeaning, you don't haul off and do something violent against them, verbally or physically. You do not sin. That means you might have to excuse yourself for five minutes to compose yourself. I have students have been taught by their therapists how that when they get angry, just ask the teacher if you could step outside for a little bit. And a walk around the hallway for five minutes can work wonders just to bring down the emotions of what they felt. And then they can come talk to me about what, something, uh, what someone said in class or did something. But they've learned how to manage their emotions where they can get angry but not do something bad out of that anger. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we do in Christ. You deal with your anger rather than let it fester. He says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. He's not saying here you have to fix every problem by 6 p.m. And during time change, you have to do it by 5. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you deal with it sooner than later. You don't be someone that says, oh, it's okay, and it's really not okay. And then you go home and you fester, and you uh, dwell on it, more the next day when that person keeps doing it and just builds up because when you have undealt with anger it's going to come out eventually here again now we're talking <laughs> service about the value of venting and the when does venting become a complaining and things like that but but there is a place for venting with the right people in the right way because you get out bottled emotions that can become unhealthy if you don't deal with it that's what paul is saying to do you exchange the bad that is undealt with anger or anger that comes out the wrong way, and you instead deal with it sooner so that your life is not consumed with it. Verse 28, stealing. It says, those who have been stealing must what? Steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So here, someone's been stealing, taking from their employer, um, 
their timesheet, uh, falsifying that, falsifying records to the IRS, uh, returning items to stores that, that really are damaged. If you talk to the return department at Lowe's, which I did one time, they told me all the stories about what people have put into those boxes. They've tried to return back, trying to rip off the store. Just because a store has a lenient return policy doesn't mean that's a rip-off policy for you. So if you've been stealing, even though your neighbor steals that way, or Aunt Margaret steals that way, that's how you learn that. That's not going to be your way. He says, stop stealing. But he doesn't just say you sit at home and you can't go to a store or you can't do anything because you might steal. He says, instead, instead <coughs> those who have stealing, been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. If someone's been stealing instead of working, Paul says here, stop stealing, but go to work, get a job. Learn the fulfillment that comes from earning your money rather than taking someone else's. And then once you're earning your own money, use it to share with people who have need. Giving to others is one of the most beautiful things we could do, because not only is someone else blessed, you have a feeling that's hard to match. Jesus says, more blessed to give than to receive. Some of the most satisfied people in our world are always giving to others. Because it feels better for them to give than to hoard a bunch of things that they could buy. And their life is full of blessing others with things. What God is calling us to is get rid of the bad, but exchanging the bad for the exact opposite biblical alternative. There is a biblical right alternative for every sin we can commit. It's not like we just have to sit at home and do nothing when we stop sinning. We do the opposite. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. <coughs> you ever know some people that love gossip? And they've got a juicy bit of gossip and they've got something good. They can't wait to tell somebody. Happens where I work at times. There's staff members, and even including myself, I thought, oh, man, do you hear what just happened with so-and-so? You just want to go tell that. Or do you hear what might happen tonight? Or what might happen at the faculty meeting? We are tempted when we've got a piece of juicy information to do something with it. And we've had trouble maintaining conversations. Boy, nothing draws a crowd quicker then juicy gossip. Hey, come, let me tell you. Come on, come on, come on, come in the room. And let's shut the door and let me tell you what I heard. Man, you can get attention quick. People that don't really care about you will come into the room because they want to hear it too. But in Christ, you don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but instead what is helpful for building others up. You look to compliment rather than criticize. You look to encourage rather than to gossip or slander. You find good things about a person to point out rather than things that they need to work on that are obvious. You're someone that knows how to use your communication as God has called you to. Be an encourager like Barnabas was in the book of Acts. He looked for the good, even in the Apostle Paul. When he was coming out of being a persecutor, Barnabas stood by his side, was an encourager to him, and made sure the early church in Jerusalem would recognize him. This is a converted Christian now. He's no longer the Paul he used to be. Barnabas was that kind of person. Someone that would say good about someone rather than to be critical. 
Again, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Look for what a person needs. Encourage people that it might benefit those who, are li uh, who listen. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The song Nathaniel led, I said we're going to come to that in the lesson today, teach us to forgive as you've forgiven. Can we all love forgiveness until we have to forgive someone? We all love amazing grace. How sweet the sound until we have to forgive someone who really said something hurtful, spread a lie, neglected us, did us wrong. That is extremely hard to do when you have a right to be angry, but yet God calls upon you to find a way to forgive. On the plane flying back from Tampa, I had internet connection. I like to watch things I might not otherwise watch at home. And I watched a documentary on the Chowchilla kidnappings. Remember those back in the 70s? Awful, where down in Chowchilla, California, three guys decided to kidnap an entire bus load of children. They put them all underground, and for two or three days, no one even knew where they went. Those children were totally terrified. All elementary, early junior high age. They eventually found them. The three perpetrators were found guilty, put in prison. But a lot of this documentary is about how that there was never really any counseling for these children once they were found. A lot of celebration in the city of Chowchilla, but they didn't really know about post-trauma <laughs> counseling and helping people that have been through serious things. And these kids never really met with a psychologist or a, a wellness counselor. And for years, they had nothing but absolute anger and fear for their captors, which is justifiable on one level, but yet it was eating them alive. It was eating them alive, that anger and that fear, because they never really had it dealt with. Not that they needed to treat what these guys did to them as okay, but there's one of them, through really good counseling, wanted to meet in prison with one of these captors and get to the where he could say to him, I forgive you. Not that what you did was okay, but I'm not going to hold it against you any longer and ruin my life like you ruined yours. He didn't say those exact words, but that's exactly the point. He realized that his anger, his lack of forgiveness was destroying him now. And Satan always wants two people sinning. He wants the person that did the wrong and then the person that's a victim all cut up in anger, bitterness, and rage. He wins. But here Paul says, be kind and compassionate one to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Yes, a person needs to confess their wrong. They need to come to terms with what they did was wrong. But don't let someone else's wrong consume you. Where now Satan's got you too. If you have to meet up with someone just to say, I need to forgive you because I can't go on living the way I'm living. You're doing the right thing. They still have to deal with what they did. 
But you can go on living because you've simply forgiven as God has called you to forgive. That doesn't mean excuse, doesn't mean explain away, just means you're not going to let that fester in your life. Finally, last one, model the example you have in God. 5, 1, and 3, Paul says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave, us up, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for the Lord's people. Here Paul talks about follow the example of God, which means following the example of the Father, of the Son and of the Spirit. Sometimes you're not going to feel like doing the right thing. You're not going to feel like watching your language. <laughs> you're not going to feel like staying in and out of a place that is corrupting to you. You're going to want to go out and do something. You're not going to feel like doing the right thing. And at times, for sure, you're not going to feel like forgiving someone. Thankfully, our God says you never have to feel like doing any of these things. <laughs> Again, God doesn't say you have to feel like doing any of these things. You just have to do it. And follow the example of Christ. What did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the very people that were crucifying him. If he could do that, we could do the tough things that we are called to do. Whether it be at work, or driving when we're angered with neighbors whose stuff is on our property, with friends who betrayed us or ignoring us, with family who have done us wrong, whatever it is, we can take it on if Christ could say to his killers, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Again, this is a beautiful life. Because God has called us to freedom. Freedom to follow him, but also freedom from the baggage of sin and the self-imprisonment of emotions and feelings that are consumed with things that happened 30 years ago or three days ago or three minutes ago. God calls us to freedom, to a beautiful life where there are no wasted years and no meaningless day. Every day is full of growth, taking on challenges, and we continue that for the rest of our days. You'll never get to a point where you've arrived, you've plateaued, and you got everything down. Then, then you're self-righteous. Every day is a day where you can be someone new, someone different. God makes all things new, and that's the beauty of this wonderful life that we've been called to. Cleansed of sin, called to start all over again, and given amazing grace by our God to start again even when we said a thousand times we wouldn't do it. Stay with your God. Therein is a place of hope, of life, and a future. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song to encourage you to go this direction. What other life is there that we'd ever want? What does Hollywood offer? You see anything on TV yet that equals what God is giving us? Anything in the movies? How about politics? Sports? 
Anything in your neighborhood you've seen that equals what God is giving through Jesus? This is priceless. But it's also precious. Treat it that way. The life that God has given you is very precious. Live to be who you've meant to be. As this song is saying, may the words resonate in your life and in my life that we might continue this calling. It's a high calling, Paul said in Philippians. And may we recognize that. May we strengthen each other, encourage each other, pray for each other to stay on course to be found faithful the day that God calls us home. Let's stand and sing this song that Nathaniel's prepared.